Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. everybody. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. I told you last week I was going to finish chapter 15. Well, it seems that I'm a liar, so <laughs> please pray for me. Let's have a few comments on the first couple of verses since we spent the majority of last week talking about persecution. And then we'll spend the majority of our time on verse 22. Look at verse 20 with me. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they did not know him who sent me. Jesus' word that he had earlier said to the disciples, where he said, A slave is not greater than his master, refers back to a statement in John chapter 13. There, however, the Lord was speaking of the humble service of a slave. He, the Lord and the teacher, had humbly washed their feet, and so the disciples were to follow his example. But here Christ's point was that the disciples should also expect to follow his example when it comes to suffering, meaning they had no right to expect any better treatment from the world than he had received. Are you surprised when people persecute you? I mean, I'm a nice poison. However, some people think if they live like Jesus, things will go great. The only problem with such thinking is Jesus lived like Jesus and it got him crucified. We may not be experiencing this yet in the United States, yet it is happening in much of the world. Did you know that there were more martyrs for Jesus in the 20th century than ever before? The misery of the early church is being reenacted every single day. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Historically, this has proven to be true. In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed at the end of the war in a German concentration camp, prophetically wrote these words in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Do we understand what that means? Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ and is therefore not surprising that Christians should also be called upon to suffer. We need to keep in mind that at that time, the Romans also persecuted Christians for religious reasons. Now, they allowed their subjects to worship whatever gods they wanted to, as long as they also worshiped the Roman gods. But Christians preached an exclusive message that there is only one God and only one way of salvation. That, coupled with their evangelistic efforts to win converts from the other religions, went against the prevailing atmosphere of the religious pluralism of that day. But strangely, Christians were also denounced as atheists because they rejected the Romans' pantheon of gods and because they worshipped an invisible god and not an idol. Not only that, the secrecy of the Christian meetings led to shocking false rumors of gross immorality, misunderstanding about what it meant to be taking the elements during the Lord's Supper by eating eating the bread and drinking his blood led to charges of cannibalism. And believe it or not, the Christian's practice of greeting each other with a holy kiss gave rise to allegations of incest 
and other sexual perversions. So, persecution is nothing new. The first empire-wide persecution of the church took place in AD 250. Now, Rome at that time was facing some very serious problems. The emperor Decius was convinced that those difficulties resulted from the neglect of Rome's ancient gods. So he issued an edict requiring everyone to offer a sacrifice to the gods and to the emperor and to obtain a certificate attesting that they had done so. Those who refused faced arrest, imprisonment, torture, and death. Thankfully for the church, his persecution was cut short by his death in the battle of July of 251. But the final and the most violent empire-wide persecution of the church began in 303 during the reign of Diocletian. Now this persecution was nothing less than an all-out attempt to exterminate the Christian faith. Diocletian issued a series of edicts ordering that all churches be destroyed. All copies of the Bible were to be burned. And all Christians were to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods on the pain of death. Now, more recently, believers have been brutally repressed by communist and Islamic regimes. In fact, it has been estimated that in all of church history, roughly 70 million Christians have been killed for the profession of their faith. With two-thirds of those martyrdoms occurring after the start of the 20th century. Now, the actual number is likely much higher than that. The journalist cited in this article estimates that an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed every year since 1990. And know this, such persecution will be proportionate to the extent of one's identification with Jesus Christ. Jesus' teaching demands that we draw some conclusions from this. One primary deduction is that smooth sailing is not necessarily a sign that God is pleased with our lives. The absence of persecution might actually indicate instead that something is wrong. Now such was the case with Lot of the Old Testament. He tired of the separated life in the hills of Palestine, and it says he pitched his tents near Sodom. Until finally he was so firmly entrenched in the life of that city that on the day in which that judgment came and the angels commanded him to go to his relatives to the city with a warning about the impending judgment, scriptures record that his sons-in-laws just thought he was joking. So somehow he had lost his credibility along the way. But at the same time, persecution is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Sometimes we are persecuted because of our stupidity, rudeness, annoying personalities, or even false piety. So persecution also is not a sign that we are following Christ. Westboro Baptist is a good example of this when they show up events at events with signs proclaiming that God hates fags. They leave you with the impression that they are delighted that one day people are going to die and burn in hell. So some of the persecution that Christians endure is because of their own sin. We are told in Galatians to not be weary and well-doing. Chris Vanover puts his own unique spin on this and says we're also not to grow weird in well-doing. <laughs> but as far as persecution, go, persecution goes, just be sure of one thing. We do win in the end. And all those who oppose Christ will eventually one day eternally regret that choice. 
a man known as Julian the Apostate, made a wreck of his life persecuting the church. But on the day as he lay dying, being wounded in battle, he picked up a handful of sand mixed with his own blood and threw it into the sky and said to Jesus, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. Just remember this. Christianity is an anvil that has broken many hammers. Look at verse 22 with me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus is now going to talk to them and us by extension about sin. I know today that sin is a very unpopular word, but really it always has been. I mean, who wants to be told that they are sinning? But this is why I want to spend the remainder of our time upon this morning. And this is the reason. We will never be happy in sin, at least not in the long term. So in verse 22, we're going to see that now, especially since we know the Bible, we too have no excuse for our sin. But before you shrink down in your chair, I promise you, this is going to be good news for all of us. I'm going to take a story out of the Old Testament to illustrate this. Primarily, we're going to be looking at two characters, Jacob and Leah. Now, Jacob and Leah are two people with an inner vacuum and an inner emptiness. They both live with an inner sense of emptiness and are desperate for other people's affirmation, for other people's blessing for their success, and for approval, and so on. The theme today of that passage is people with an inner emptiness will give themselves to some kind of hope. Very often they give themselves to a hope, and this is a hope that we are going to call this morning the one true love. People with an inner emptiness have a tendency to give themselves to the hope that out there somewhere there is that right person or that right career and that he or she or it is somehow going to fix their life and make everything right. But some background first. If you recall, Jacob has deceived both his brother Esau and his father Isaac by stealing the birthright that belonged to his brother. Esau is presented in Scripture as a picture of someone who is given over to the immediate gratification of their flesh. We also know that he was so hairy that Jacob had to glue goat hair on his arm to fool Isaac. So Esau was sort of the Chewbacca of the Old Testament, <laughs> if that helps you any. Anyway, Isaac, his father, loved Esau, his older brother. He preferred Esau, and so Jacob grew up shunted, rejected, second best, and scornful and resentful. And finally, we see the point at one point when his father is very old and very blind and almost near death, Jacob dresses up as Esau and fools his blind father into giving him the deathbed blessing that belonged to the firstborn. Now, as a result, Esau, his brother, is furious with him and vows to kill him. And Jacob now has to run for his life and everything begins to fall apart now. And by the way, that's how sin always is in our life. What initially seems like a stellar idea eventually backfires and runs your life into a ditch. So Rachel sends Jacob to live with her relative Laban so Esau can't kill him. While Jacob doesn't realize that while Jacob's name means deceiver, Laban has a doctorate in deception. 
So he runs far away just to survive to be with his relatives of his mother, whom he is never going to see again, which may be the first payment for his sin. But now he's starting to work. He's tending the flocks of his uncle Laban. So Laban comes to him and says, look, let's negotiate a contract. What should your salary be? When Jacob answers Laban, now we see how Jacob is coping with the mess of his life, with the ruins that his life is in. How is he dealing with the unhappiness? How is he dealing with the hopes that have been dashed? How is he dealing with that inner emptiness now? The passage starts off with Laban saying, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. We see it immediately when he says, tell me what your wages will be. Jacob says, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So we see a few things here. First of all, we know from verse 17 of that chapter that Rachel is beautiful, absolutely stunning, and sexually attractive. So he's looking at her and saying, I never got my father's blessing. Now I've lost my mother, and here I am out here tending sheep. Everything in my life is falling apart. But Rachel, well, she's the most beautiful woman in the whole territory. If I got her, if she was my wife, finally, something in my life would be going right. Finally, there would be something about my life that would be worth something, and I'd be worth something. My life would be worth something. It would fix it. It would begin to make amends. This will finally fix my life. This is going to fill that hole. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner or anything else that we put in God's place? It can be a career or a hobby or a person or a host of other things in that position. What we want, we want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our own feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. What are we going to do? How are we going to get rid of the sense that our life doesn't really matter all that much? How are we going to get rid of the sense that in the grand scheme of things, we're really not all that significant? How are we going to get rid of that sense of nothingness? We see the disillusionment that generally accompanies this hope for the one true love apart from anything except God. If you want to see the disillusionment, we see it first by looking at Laban's plot and secondly at Leah's lot. Laban's plot and Leah's lot. As in what happens to Jacob through Laban and what happens to Leah through Laban. First of all, Laban's plot. Let's take a look and see what Laban does to Jacob for a second. And we're going to see that Laban is a con artist. Jacob is a deceiver, but in Laban... He has met his match. Because the minute he said, I will work for you for seven years for Rachel, Laban, Laban's devious mind began to go to work. So he worked seven years, and the seven years are up. It says, and Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Side note, gentlemen, can you imagine saying that to your father-in-law? You'd expect the next verse to say, and lo, Laban did punch Jacob right on the snout. <laughs> but Jacob says, now it's my time. Well, now it's the wedding. 
Now, of course, it doesn't take a great deal of historical or archaeological knowledge for you to imagine that the bride is kept heavily veiled throughout the entire day. First, there is a procession from her home to the place of the ceremony. Then there's a ceremony. Then there's a huge feast that lasts for hours and hours and hours. But she remains veiled. That was the custom. And finally, at night, the groom takes his bride into his tent. And, of course, a couple of things are kind of common sense here. There are no electric lights. And after hours and hours of drinking, they lie together. And Jacob says, ah, Rachel. But in the morning, he discovers it is Leah. John Coffey, I will pay you $100 to paint the look on Jacob's face when he first saw it was Leah instead of Rachel. Poor old Jacob was the victim of the old switcheroo. Laban had put in his older sister. So when he runs to Laban, he says, what have you done? Here's the reply. What does Laban say? He says, well, the custom here is to not have the older girl marry before the younger. That's a fairly lame legal statement. There are all kinds of just devastating comebacks, such as fine, but this is still fraud. You didn't tell me about this. You knew what I was working for. This is fraudulent. This is cheating. This is illegal. I'm sure there was some kind of law back then. But why didn't he come back with any of that? Why, when Laban says what he says, does Jacob just meekly give in? I mean, there's clearly anger when Jacob gets to Laban and says, why have you done this? Jacob is filled with fury. But what happens when Laban says what he says? The next thing we see, Jacob just gives in. Why? Let me tell you what I think happened at that point. I think suddenly a flaming spear went to Jacob's conscience and exploded. Maybe he understood the minute he even used that word, deceived. He said, why have you deceived me? It's exactly the same word in Hebrew that Isaac used to describe what Jacob had done to him all those years before. Maybe the second it was out of his mouth, he began to realize that when Laban says, around here it's also not the custom for the younger to be preferred over the older. Jacob must have cringed. Since isn't that exactly what Jacob did by fooling his father to choose the younger over the older brother? Suddenly Jacob would have said, and Jacob would have known, wait a minute, he's doing exactly to me what I did to my father. I reached out in the dark thinking it was somebody who it wasn't. Just like my father reached out in the dark touching somebody thinking it was somebody and it wasn't. In fact, a medieval rabbi who commented on this passage and imagined Jacob having an angry exchange with Leah the following morning. Jacob said to her, I called out Rachel in the dark, but you answered. Why did you do that to me? Then Leah said to him, your father called out Esau in the dark, and you answered. Why did you do that to him? So the fury just kind of dies on his lips. He's cut to the quick. He's hoisted on his own spear, as we say. And he now knows what it feels like to be exploited. He now, know, he now knows what it's like to be used. He now knows what it's like to be lied to. He's shattered. But that's not all. It's not just his life that's been shattered. Now we have poor Leah. Leah is now married to Jacob. What are we told about Leah? What do we know about Leah up to now? 
The Bible said that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. One of the problems for the translators of the Bible is this word used in Hebrew to describe her eyes. It's a word that means breakable or fragile. And it's, a, it's kind of a tough word to quite figure out. It's hard to figure out what the narrator is really getting that. It says Leah had weak eyes. Now, here's my question. Is that really what this is getting at? Is that the point of the sentence? Does this say that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel could see a long, long way? No. It's not talking about their sight. It's talking about their appearance. Maybe either she had crossed eyes or she had protruding eyes or something like that. Or some commentators even think it means that when you looked at Leah, it made your eyes hurt. <laughs> Bottom line, Leah was unattractive. Leah was homely. And she grew up in the shadow of, an old, of a younger sister who was absolutely stunning. Do you know what Leah's name means in Hebrew? Wild cow. So we see her parents definitely didn't do the poor girl any kind of favors. I mean, Leah had to be utterly disgusted with that name. Sorry. I milked that cow joke for all it was worth. But anyway, that's the reason why Laban has to unload her like this. He's been scheming in his mind for many years that the only way I'm ever going to get Leah married to anybody is I'm going to have to trick somebody into doing it. Otherwise, I'm going to be stuck with her forever. Leah is the unwanted one. Leah is the ugly duckling, while Rachel is the beautiful swan. That is, in a way, while we should understand it's really Leah and not Rachel, there's really Jacob's soulmate. Because we will see that Leah has, what Leah has had to do to deal with that big hole in her heart the same way that Jacob has had to do that. So every time that Leah has a son, she chooses a Hebrew word for the name that expresses her longing for her husband Jacob. Her son's name, Reuben, is taken from a word that means to see. Because what she is saying is, maybe now, finally, I will be visible to my husband. Maybe he just won't look straight through me. Secondly, Simeon comes from the word that means to hear because she says, now finally, maybe now my husband will listen to me instead of just saying, yeah, yeah, Leah, whatever. Then Levi comes along. It's the word for attached. At every point, she's trying to say, now finally, my husband is going to love me. I'm having all these babies. I'm having all these sons. I'm being the perfect wife, at least according to the cultural standards of that time. I'm having all these children. I'm being the perfect wife. What is she doing? How is she handling the hole in her heart, that inner emptiness in her life? The same way that Jacob handled the fact that Esau was preferred to him. The same way Leah is handling the fact that Rachel was preferred over her for years and years. She is looking for that one true love. She says, if this man would just love me, if I could be his wife and be a happy mother and have good children, then I'd be somebody. Then I'd be visible. Then I'd be worth something. Then I'd be listened to. Then maybe I would be important. The first lesson we're supposed to learn from this, especially in the most vivid way, 
is when Jacob wakes up in the morning and it was Leah for being taught something. And all of her life, through every event, through every aspect of our lives, there will always be a kind of sense of ultimate disappointment. And we're not going to lead a wise life until we know that. Jacob goes to bed with the one. I finally got the one. The one thing. The one person who's going to make my life okay. But in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Every time you get started in any kind of relationship, every time you move into a marriage, every time you get into a job, every time you get into a new project, any time you get into any kind of pursuit and you think, this is finally going to make my life right apart from Christ, I want you to know that in the morning, it is always Leah. You may go to bed with Rachel, but in the morning, it will always, always be Leah. Nobody put it better than C.S. Lewis who said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, or no learning can ever satisfy. He then says, I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learning careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in the first moment of longing which just fades away with reality. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job. But the thing that we thought was going to be in the center of it always evades us. What is Mr. Lewis saying there? In the morning, it's always Leah. If you get married or if you get the job of your dreams, apart from the Lord, it will always be Leah in the morning. There is something you want in your heart that nothing in this world can satisfy, and you can spend your lifetime with a sense of disappointment. So here's the whole point of the sermon and what I want us to get. We are going to now see who ultimately fulfills this hope for the one true love. The answer is look at what happens to Leah. Look what happens in her and to her. Another way to put it is look what God does in her and what God does for her, first in her. Do you notice an interesting progression? Even though she is calling out and saying, if my husband, in other words, the husband is her savior. Now, of course, she wouldn't say that, and we wouldn't say that. You would never let yourself say such a thing. But you're looking to that one person or thing to make you feel like your life is okay, to make yourself feel meaningful, to give some sense to your life, to make yourself feel valuable. Until finally, Leah has a fourth kid. Now we're going to have a breakthrough. The fourth child, Judah, comes along. And the word Judah means praise. There's no mention of her husband. There's no mention of even the child in a sense. There's even a kind of defiance in her words. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. What does she mean by this time? Well, this time it's different. This time I'm going to praise the Lord. And she stopped having children. The implication is, I don't need to have children anymore. I'm not going to work at it like I was. Why? 
She took the deepest passionate desires of her heart away from her husband and then placed them upon the Lord. Jacob and Laban, those men, had stolen her life. They had been stealing her life from her for many years. But the moment that she did that, she took her life back. There is now liberation for her. And what happens to her when Judah is born? She can't probably know about it, but she might possibly have perceived it. What is God doing for her when Judah is born? We have to ask ourselves, who is Judah? Well, the writer of Genesis knows because later in chapter 48, near the very end of that book, there's a prophecy that comes and says, Judah is the one from whom the king will come. Judah is the one through whom the scepter will come. What does that mean? Let me just put it in a nutshell. As we finish up today, God looks down upon a beautiful woman and an ugly woman. God looks down upon one woman who has a designer kind of life, and everybody in the world has always wanted her, and looks at the girl that nobody wanted, a nobody. He looks at the girl who is unloved, who is unlovely, and he says, you are going to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Earlier the Bible says that when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he loved her. Why? Because he is the true bridegroom, the Word of God says. He's the true love. He's the only spouse who will ever fulfill you because he's the only one who will never let us down. God gives Leah, the rejected one, the weak one, to be in the lineage of Jesus because that, my friends, is how the gospel works. The gospel saves people not who are strong. The gospel saves people who are weak and who are willing to admit that they are sinners. Do you realize that the Bible insists that you might look like Leah today? To God and Jesus Christ, you always look like a Rachel if you are a Christian. Let these things pass into your life this morning, and you can take your life back. And today at the picnic, if you would like to talk to me about any of these things, please search me out, bring me a piece of chocolate, and we'll go somewhere. <laughs> Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the perfect bridegroom. And, Lord, I know that I tried enough things the first 21 years of my life to fill that void, and they were all empty. But you, Lord, you are life. Give us that life today. Touch every heart in here and everyone who will see this message on the Internet. We ask in your name. Amen.